We live in challenging times, but design industries from fashion and food to consumer tech, beauty and interiors have shown themselves at their resilient best over the past few years. As we look to the future, this podcast explores how all creators can adapt to changing expectations and create better futures for both their businesses and their consumers. I'm Carla Bazashi, CEO of WGSN and your host this week. You're listening to Create Tomorrow, the WGSN podcast. This week, I've asked three members of WGSN's consultancy team, Mindset, to talk to me about the top priorities design brands should have for 2022. Spanning North America, Asia and Europe, my three experts are used to challenging briefs from diverse brands wrestling with creating better products and experiences for their consumers. Danny Kim, a senior consultant based in New York City, Maria Arabidate, a senior consultant based in London, and Crystal Tai, a consultant based in Hong Kong, all understand design brand challenges and consumer behaviour, and are here for a quick lesson in brand resilience and planning for the coming year. So let's dive straight in. Uh, My first question, uh, I'm going to come to Crystal uh, on this. What are the best quick win strategies for any brand wanting to appeal to or build loyalty with the Gen Z consumer? I mean, I know, for example, in China alone, there are 320 million uh, Gen Z consumers. Um, So what's your advice for brands in this space, Crystal? Well, to give you a quick overarching overview, um, with all the opportunities that the China market presents, there are also countless obstacles that brands are running into these days. So from technology, data privacy, as well as private enterprise. Um, Among those, over the last few years of the pandemic especially, we've also seen the rise of Guochao, or national trend, um, which involves, uh, I guess, a new kind of um, Gen Z nationalism, or or nationalism led by Gen Z, um, which which has started pushing out international competitors. However, there are some ways that brands can still connect with Gen Z consumers through the Guochao trend. Um, And one way is through contributing to China's cultural dialogue. So for instance, Prada in the past has done this in a respectful and serious manner through Prada Mode, which featured a collaboration with the Chinese director, Jia Zhangke, as well as um, through panel talks and short film screenings, which they hosted via their, their um, WeChat channel. And this uh, brought in, I think, 200,000 viewers. So it was very successful. Um, and then coming back to China's Gen Z consumers, we find that they're less motivated by status and increasingly seeking self-expression as well as personalization. And part of this is due to the very highly competitive environment, um, a very stressful environment that they've been raised in, um, in which throughout the uncertainty of the pandemic and um, current times, they are starting to rethink their priorities and looking to follow individual dreams as well as personal aspirations. Danny, um, there's a, there's a, I guess a, important aspect for Gen Z, and actually it's not just Gen Z, but a topic that we've talked about a lot in this podcast, we obsess about at WGSN, uh, which is sustainability. Now, some research suggests that for Gen Z in particular, sustainable products are becoming the norm, um, if not mandatory. I'm not sure that's necessarily true across the entire cohort. But but what, what can brands do to better cater to this really strong need coming out of this particular generation? 
It's important to, you know, first understand, you know, what sustainability really means for these Gen Z consumers today. It can mean a lot of different things, you know, and brands need to also prioritize the variance of sustainability, whether it's through a product or service. And, you know, from fashion and retail perspective, the transparency around where the product comes from is important. Uh, Consumers want to know how the product is made, sold, and delivered. And the clients that we work with are hyper-focused focus on their CSR initiatives, you know, asking questions such as, are we doing the right thing or is this the right way to do it? And, you know, don't try to do everything all at once, but stick with the ones that you truly believe in and action upon it and definitely be vocal about it as well. You know, Gen Z consumers will know right away if a brand's initiative is authentic or not. And, you know, in order to capture their attention, the product itself also needs to have a voice that speaks to wider audience, but also shares the same values. So from one extremely important topic to another, um, I was going to say buzzwords, but sustainability is definitely not a buzzword, but I potentially would put the metaverse into that category. Now, we spent all of 2021 talking about this. We were getting questions from clients all over the world about what is the metaverse? How can we use it? So um, question, who shall I come to? Maria, I'm going to send this one to you. Go on. (laughs) Is it an overriding uh, priority for all regions? Or do you think there are more immediate challenges that brands need to be worried about in 2022? You know, it's um, funny that you said that the metaverse is a buzzword, because the way I see it is that you're right, it has become a bit of a marketing buzzword. And the way I speak about it with my clients, a lot of our Clients are actually at the moment coming from an angle of what are we going to be doing with this massive digital wave that is moving so quickly. Um, And the way I try to explain it to them is that it do not look at the metaverse as almost a different reality. But what if you started calling it the meta economy? So starting and looking at it from a point not only to engage with consumers in how to communicate, because obviously the metaverse also encapsulates things like social media um, or social commerce, but also how you can almost break the rules of retail and selling into something that can come in so many different ways. So it becomes almost like a whole new world of opportunities beyond what people are looking or the way that people are looking at it at the moment, which is more like avatars or, you know, it could be even the whole idea around meta realities and gaming, etc. We need to start thinking also beyond that and how this at the end of the day needs to become a transaction. So when I'm thinking of metaverse as an opportunity for businesses. The way I really face it to our clients is looking at it from cryptocurrencies, from a a blockchain perspective, how also speaking, hearing now Danny speak, um, how sustainability and the metaverse are going to be intertwining, for instance. And we are going to be looking at more blockchain, tracking the transparency of a product. So it can reach so many more aspects um, and they can actually also almost immerse themselves from metaverse is at the moment seen as digital only. But the reality is that metaverse is 
And if we look at it from a meta-economy, is how they interlink even more with in real or physical retail. So taking both and working on them um, in a way that becomes even more of an omni-channel form. I, I love the fact that you are looking at it and translating it for uh, you know, design industries as an opportunity. Because I think every time there's big technological innovation, uh, a kind of knee-jerk reaction is that fear. We're going to get left behind. We don't know what we don't know yet. And the reality is that these are going to evolve. They're going to evolve. And if we can look for the, the good opportunities within it, you don't necessarily need to be first to market there. You can look back, see how others are utilising it. But seeing it with that positive standpoint, I think is a it's a good way to go into it, especially at the beginning of the year. It's a good way to go into it. It is interesting. We looked at a, a recent study in the US. It said something like 43% um, are anxious about the metaverse. 66% are excited about its rise, but we've still got to think about that 43%. And how do we handhold consumers into this, but also how do brands utilize it um, uh, as, a, as a force for good? Um, and I think you've kind of really well touched upon that. Um, I'm going to stick with you, uh, Maria, on this topic. You mentioned um, uh, cryptocurrency uh, in your previous answer. We predicted the crypto class to be a key cohort uh, for 2022. Can you give us a little bit of detail into who are these key audiences? And again, how can brands leverage this, this cohort, which could be really useful for them? Yeah, so speaking about Gen Z, um, it's interesting as well because we're looking also at when I look at millennials and I was recently reading an article um, on millennial spending and millennial millionaires and actually nearly half of millennial millionaires have at least 25% of the wealth in cryptocurrencies. And if we're looking also even at Gen Z, we are seeing that 59% believe they could become wealthy by investing in cryptocurrency at the moment. Um, since it's coming and originally it came obviously from like we're looking at it from a gaming perspective or also um as we as you just called it as well the crypto class it tends to be younger generations looking at this new ways of investment but we're saying that but it, again it's moving so quickly so even mastercard i believe it was in october they announced that they're going to be creating a new loyalty program where instead of getting points uh, for your spending, you will get a form of cryptocurrency. So it's moving so quickly and becoming mass and so quickly adopted that brands are going to have to almost keep a really close eye on this. To that point as well, you mentioned also uh, when we're looking also at that, again, around the message of crypto um, and also the different audiences in it. What's interesting as well is that because it is moving so quickly and it's actually almost, we could say, driven by the creator economy. Um, and again, this millennials, Gen Zers, uh, all the people that really create content all these new currencies are appearing really quickly. So it's almost something that I would say is a little bit more long-term if we're thinking of 2022, but thinking and keeping an eye on these new currencies that are emerging is going to be so key. So you've kind of, um, you've touched on something quite interesting uh, in there, which is this kind of tension between short-term pains and gains, but also mm -hmm. longer-term thinking. Um, let's let's focus in on the fashion industry j just for a moment. Danny, the, the fashion brands that you work with, 
are they looking at immediate issues when they're thinking about evolving and adjusting their businesses or is the thinking longer term at the moment? I'm very conscious we are, well, we can't say we're coming out of pandemic at the moment. It's still, you know, causing huge issues all across the globe. But how is that, how is that tension being played out in the fashion businesses that you're talking to? Right. I mean, and just looking at your questions, I think um, it's a little bit of both. You know, fashion brands now, you know, have figured out sort of a way to quickly react to a certain trend that they see, you know, whether it's from a supply chain perspective or have that data driven information early on in advance. And, you know, a lot of clients we work with now want sort of trends that have some kind of a data back resources. You know, fashion trend is no longer just about what we see on the runway or in the streets of Europe. It's much more deeper than that. You know, and as we look at the trend curve or even retail data, you know, we build that confidence to our clients where they can you know, prepare themselves better in long term. And these viable data can support their business strategies, both short term and long term. And the concern today isn't so much about is a certain trend within fashion going to show up within six months or in one year, but rather it's really focused on the validity of the trend and how much of an impact it's going to have have to their business based on the history of data collected. It is for someone like myself who's um, been in the fashion industry, out of the fashion industry, back again in my career, seeing how um, sometimes fashion industry have been quite slow to adopt things, but when they do, they they embrace it wholeheartedly. And I think data has, it was initially, again, we're talking about that kind of fear factor, it was felt that it could completely um, obliterate creativity. And actually what we've seen is really innovative brands who are more creative than they ever have been by including data into their creative process. Uh, you know, it's definitely something that at WGSN we are capturing and ensuring that we arm them with both sides of that. So the qual and the quant, the kind of expert and the analytical. Um, and that is fascinating for me seeing you know different brands at kind of different steps uh, in that journey. Crystal, can you talk about how that plays out in APAC? Maybe not necessarily in fashion, but what are the challenges that are really facing those markets? And especially, you know, brands trying to address consumer expectations uh, in places like China and Korea, as an example. It's actually been fascinating because while K-pop, K-beauty, um, all things K-related continue to gain relevance across much of the world, um, we find that Korean cultural imports and products are actually losing momentum in one of its biggest former markets, which is China. But then looking at North America, where um, thanks to groups like BTS, um, K-pop is being considered mainstream by now. Um, there's actually been a lot of considerable growth as well. Um, one area that, uh, one case study that's been really interesting has been the rise of Squid Game, for instance, um, on Netflix. So apparently, um, APAC represents Netflix's biggest opportunity for growth at the moment. And one way that they're targeting this market is actually through um, looking at the discarded ideas from local TV. So in South Korea, there are a lot of taboos for local television, um, for instance, like sex, violence, <laughs> um, uh, cultural taboos as well. And so a lot of pitches are... Um, are rejected and Netflix then goes to these local producers, local screenwriters, and has been putting together a lot of innovative new projects that uh, target more taboo themes, including social inequality and politics. So, 
Yeah, it's fascinating. It's really interesting, that idea that as the rest of the world adopts cultural trends or actually any kind of trends coming out of uh, Asia Pacific, those countries have kind of moved on now. uh, And and it's, you know, this idea that maybe uh, in the past, the kind of Western world was leading very much a kind of follower uh, at the moment and looking to the East for um, those new cultural phenomena that actually might have been, you know, part and parcel of pieces of culture, you know, for decades before. Um, But it also speaks to that um, movement in a world where we are much more curtailed by where we are. There has been so much less travel over the past couple of years. And, and there was that feeling early on that people were going to look inwards, but we are still looking outwards. We want to be inspired. We want something that feels new, even if it's not new from where it's come from, but that it's new to us and kind of give us new, new ways of expressing our own creativity, new products and new experiences as well. So talking about new experiences, um, we've all as individuals had to reconsider space around us, how we live our lives. Um, Urban life has completely changed uh, during this pandemic. Um, And one of the areas that has felt the biggest impact from that is obviously bricks and mortar retail. Um, Maria, what should businesses be prioritising in this area as those kind of big migratory shifts are still in flux at the moment when they're thinking about luring people uh, into their old their old stores at the moment? What should they be considering? I think uh, most important, and again, going back to what we always, our clients are constantly coming to us, especially so many stores have closed down um, from the clients we had at WGSN and the re-strategizing. And the key message for me is Q-commerce, so quick commerce. I mean, especially in Europe, um, if you think about it, Milan is creating more of a 15-minute city and they've called it the super block. Um, and we're thinking of the city in as such as blocks. Madrid, Barcelona are doing the same. Paris, again, the Champs-Élysées is getting, again, all pedestrianised. So thinking of new ways of how the flagship is not necessarily going to have to be that big, you may be able, and this can take, again, so many different shapes and forms, but the flagship is not necessary, at least in the locations that we would expect them to be. So again, when we're thinking of neighbourhoods, when we're thinking of suburbs, a lot of us have moved outside of city centres, thinking of from, it could be a vending machine, all the way to, it could be, for example, a pop-up store in a very remote location. I mean, um, Prada did Prada Outdoors recently, so, well, last year. So looking at new ways in which you can really help the consumer benefit, not only from your product, but even your services, because a lot of this retail uh, retail spaces are becoming more service driven since the product can be bought online. So it's all about providing that additional benefit or have, of having to go in store is going to be so key. I think just before this podcast we started recording, we were talking about how lots of our worlds seem very, very small at the moment. And I think mm. any way of helping people feel that the world isn't so small, even if they're not traveling, um, I would certainly be welcoming that right now as someone who, um, uh, very cliched, did move out uh, of a big city uh, during this pandemic. 
Um, so to wrap things up, um, I'm going to come to all three of you uh, and ask you to just talk briefly about a particular topic that you've seen emerging in the conversations that you're having with creatives and buyers, merchandisers, innovation teams um, that you think will be really important topics and things that all brands should be considering in 2022. And Danny, I'll come to you first. Yeah. So earlier, you know, we spoke about Gen Z and, you know, how brands are hyper focused on targeting to these consumers. Um, what we are starting to hear more is about the alpha generation, the next generation post Gen Z. You know, marketing towards the alpha generation is quickly approaching. And there's not a ton of information out there on alpha because they're still too young to have that impact on spending power. But globally, you know, there will be over 2 billion alphas by 2025. And, you know, from influencer strategies to products and services focused on the next generation, you know, this this is the next topic the companies are wanting to know more about. You know, we'll even start to hear more about Gen Z parents as they start to enter into the workforce and the adulthood. So the next step is for the brands to prepare themselves for what's coming and how to react quickly to capture this market share to wind. That's a really good point, although it's making me feel very old as you're saying that. Um, Crystal, coming to you next. So going back to the topic of the metaverse, I've noticed that clients are very curious about how best to engage with this emerging new space. Um, one in particular actually asked me how real world physical items and products are being manifested within the metaverse. And I thought that was a great question. Um, so. We talked a bit about realm estate or the emergence of um, virtual real estate and how consumers are buying that up. NFTs, of course, um, virtual artworks. Um, and also with the pandemic, how a lot of formerly offline events and festivals, such as Complex Land, have moved to being hosted on, um, in the virtual world, in virtual spaces where uh, attendees and visitors can, can buy, can create their own avatars and then purchase clothing, actual clothing for their avatars, um, as well as other products um, and other, and other uh, recent collaborations like the North Face and Gucci uh, drop for avatar clothing on Pokemon Go, which was a really fun new way of exploring the metaverse as well. Yeah, we, I mean, we should be playing bingo with this. How many times we're going to say the metaverse in, you know, less than 25 minutes. And we knew it would be pretty high in there. Uh, Maria, you can talk to us about the metaverse or a different topic. Actually, I'm going to be speaking rather than looking at it from the metaverse. If you do have a retail store, how can you bring that experience that everyone is expecting in the digital like the digital world? into your physical space. So I would say take inspiration from, again, looking back at neighborhoods, looking back at hyperlocality, how you can really personalize the experience based on the location. Um, there's definitely a lot of opportunity that can go that way and also with the help of digitalization. So think of just more personalized shopping behaviors emerging and how you can really feed into those in store. Thank you so much to Maria, Danny and Crystal for joining me this week. And thank you too for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please subscribe to the show, which is available on all major podcast platforms. And if you really like what you heard, then please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. If you're interested in what we've been talking about today, then please head over to WGSN.com, where you can find out how you can access all of our insight and analysis. 
Thank you again to my guests, and I'd also like to thank our podcast producers, Bethan Ryder and Roland Bodenham, and thank you again for listening. Until next time, stay well and healthy, and look forward to chatting to you again soon.